If you have a copy of the scriptures, I would invite you to look with me in the book of James. We're going to start chapter 2 today. And as you're turning there, if you have those little uh, scripture journals, there are some more in the lobby if you want any of those. Uh, I want to review a little bit about the book of James. Uh, I wanna, actually, I want to do three things. Uh, I want to give you a quick update on me. Uh, I want to do a quick review of James and then uh, have a couple questions to set up chapter two this morning. So I uh, want you to know quickly, uh, I'm doing pretty well. So this week I was off of chemo. So this is my seventh day of being off chemo. So I start back tomorrow morning. Um, I had my first follow-up appointment with the oncologist this past Wednesday. And that means I got a bunch of blood work and all that stuff. And so far, everything looks really good. And so my white cell count is good. My red cell counts are good. My kidney and liver are working really, really well. My kidneys and liver are working really, really well. Um, so I'm very thankful for that. And uh, thank you for your prayers. Uh, I don't really think that I would be able to continue to do what I have been able to do without your prayers and your love and your support. So thank you. Um, round three starts tomorrow. So the ne next Lord's Day, uh, I will be halfway through uh, my treatment. And so if you think of me this week, please feel free to pray. Uh, if you are uh, at a point in your life where you feel really down and uh, out about what's going on in your life, um, be thankful that God answers prayer and rejoice in what he's doing, at least in my life. I'm very thankful for that. So if you're really down, I'll tell you, be thankful for what God's doing in me because he's doing a lot. And maybe that can help you in your life to know that you can trust him too and that people pray and it changes us. God acts. Um, but all right, second, let's review James just a little bit. Uh, so, quickly, three things to remember about James before we dive in. One, James, the book itself, is describing what a cross-shaped life looks like. Remember this? James is describing what a cross-shaped or cross-formed life looks like. And we have five menu items, so today I figured it's important to review at least the first two. Because we've looked at the enduring part. So a cross-shaped life looks like five things on the menu from James's perspective. First is endurance in chapter one. We need to endure trials, we need to endure temptation, and we need to continue to persevere or endure in the word of God. That's what we looked at last week. This week, we start chapter two, which is menu item number two, and that is authenticity. God forms and shapes us through the cross so that we are becoming an authentic people. We are becoming more truly human. We are becoming more honest. <clears throat> we are seeing things more clearly. We are becoming an authentic people such that what we say is actually by grace how we live. We don't just say one thing and do another. Actually, we do, but we admit that too. So that's where we're starting today, thinking about authenticity in chapter two. So James is describing for us a cross-shaped life. Second, God has always and will always want us to be motivated by grace. He wants us to be motivated by grace. He wants us to recognize what Jesus has done is far more than some slogan, Jesus died for my sins. It is an actual power in our lives that is working salvation. 
so that in our everyday lives, we ought to be looking to Jesus, the living Christ, and by the Spirit's power, bring that into our lives and be motivated to live based on what Jesus has accomplished. Make sense? Just a hint. You might pick up on the fact that we should be motivated by grace today in James chapter 2. Thirdly, as we look at James, I want you to remember this, that it fits with our vision. Loving God, loving people, and loving place. James fits this vision because it reminds us that God doesn't so much have a mission for his people as a people for his mission. And I want to add one more thing to that. Something you've heard before. God wants us to be ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. So if you're wondering, what does God want me to do? Here's what he wants. He wants you to be an ordinary person who is enduring and who's learning to be authentic and one who is doing ordinary things like going to school and learning, like fulfilling your callings, like getting married, like being single, like having children or not, changing careers, figuring that out, living in Greenville. God wants you to be ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. Now for our uh, prep for specifically James 2 this morning, I have two questions for you, and I want you to answer these questions out loud, if you will, and I'm trying to make them very simple questions. These are not trick questions. I'm not gonna yank the rug out from underneath you, okay? So two questions, because I don't want this to be a distraction in any way when we look at James 2. First question is this. Is someone automatically saved because they are poor? No. Good answer. Here's the second question. Is God against money? No. Thank you. All right. So you cannot interpret these verses to think that if you're poor, that you are automatically saved. And you cannot interpret these verses to say that God despises money. Okay? That's the setup. Boy, doesn't that sound weird? Well, let's look at this together. James 2, 1 through 13. Would you mind stand for the, standing for the reading of God's word today? <clears throat> you know, this is an ancient practice. It's something that the church has always struggled with is posture. You know, what do we do with our posture? Is it okay to kneel? Should we, is it okay if it's a corporate gathering to ask everyone to do that or not? Well, what if everybody can't? There are all these strange things around posture that the church has always struggled to implement. And one of the postures that we can have is standing before the word of God. So let's do that. And let's think about this together. Let's receive it as if it's coming from the king, because it is. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? 
Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Would you remain standing? Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word. It's true. Help us to know more of its truth today. And help us to know in such a way that it's not just information, but know it in such a way that it is experiential. That we are learning with our minds, that we are sensing with our emotions, that the deepest part of us, our souls, are changing because you're feeding us with living water. You're feeding us with Jesus. Convince us afresh that our worth is not in what we own. Our worth is in you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, work that and whatever else you want to into us today. Have your way with us, for we know that you can do more in 30 or 40 minutes than we can collectively do in 100 years through our works. So accomplish your purpose today. Glorify yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So this morning, here's our roadmap as we dive into these verses. Here's our roadmap. I've got three points today. I'm usually a two-point guy. I've got three today. So here's our roadmap. Learning to see everyone. Looking below the surface. Looking below the surface. And third is a question. What does James see? You got it? Learning to see everyone. Looking below the surface. What does James see? Sound good? You with me so far? Well, let's jump in. Learning to see everyone. Look how James begins. He, been, he begins with a problem in the church, a problem that's always been there, a problem that is part of the human condition, showing favoritism. Do you see it in verse 1? Don't show partiality. Literally, the word means to receive someone's face. In other words, this is saying, James is saying to us, God is saying to us through James that there is a temptation for us to receive surface things and to be attracted to the surface level of things. There is something in our hearts that's drawn to what is glamorous, to what has a lot of bling, to what has a lot of attention. There is something in us that is drawn to what is on the surface. And James illustrates this in verses two through four by giving an example. He says, just imagine if someone walks into your assembly and they are dressed incredibly well, what do you say to them? If someone walks into the assembly and they're not dressed so well, what do you say to them? 
James says, if someone walks into your assembly and they are well-dressed, do you look at them and think, oh, so-and-so is here. They need to have the best seat. And if someone comes into your midst and they aren't dressed so well, they have shabby clothes, which literally means something along the lines of revolting, like if they were urine-soaked, what would you say? What would you do to that person? If you tell the rich man, if you tell the rich woman, oh, please sit here at this place of prominence, would you say to the one that stinks, hey, let's go to the corner? Or, or maybe you can sit at my feet so I can keep a close eye on you. Don't show favoritism. Don't be partial. There's a guy in our presbytery who's planning a church in Dunn, North Carolina, one of the primary reasons why he wanted to go back to his hometown of Dunn, North Carolina and plant a church is because his father was an alcoholic. And when his father was around 20-something years old, he had been out all night binge drinking and he ended up sleeping either in his car or outside somewhere. And he came to his senses and thought to himself, my life is a wreck and I need to go to church. So he went to a house of worship, and when he showed up, he sat in the very back, and he hadn't been home. He had been out all night. He wasn't currently inebriated, but let's just say he didn't smell that great. And he sat on the back row, and some leaders from the church came to him and said, get out. You smell. Don't come back. And beloved, he never did. Tim Inman has decided to go plant a church in his hometown because he knows what it's like to have a family member, a father, who would never enter through the doors of a church again because when his own father did, he was told to leave. Let's go and try to apply this even further. Let's try to bring this home. Do you show partiality? Are you inclined toward favoritism? Am I? The quick answer to that is yes. When you get in your car and drive around Pitt County, as you drive through Pitt County and around Pitt County, do you instinctively, intrinsically think, wow, all these people have infinite value and infinite worth? Is that what you think? Is that what I think? Do you drive through Pitt County and think to yourself, can't trust these people? When you drive through Pitt County, do you think, well, these folks are just useless? When you drive around, do you begin to think that these people are not worth as much as someone else? Do you make assumptions? Stereotypes can be incredibly dangerous, can't they? Especially when we begin to shape how we think about individuals based upon those generalizations and stereotypes, which oftentimes are really wrong. You show favoritism? You incline to think that you are better than someone else or that these people are better than those? Let's go even deeper. This has come home to me a lot in the last 10 years. Say this to you and offer it for your consideration. 
I've realized that the reason why the church, especially in, the America, especially in America, has struggled with favoritism and partiality is because we, as American Christians and followers of Christ, have been so preoccupied with wanting power. Let me tell you what I mean. I have personally been to the seminars and I've read the books and I've been in conversations where the strategy for reaching people is this. Go find the people with the most influence because if you can have relationships with the people that are most influential and they're converted, they can have the greatest impact. Influence equals impact. I've heard the strategy and I began to think about that and internalize that. And I began to realize if I targeted a particular group of people that I think have a tremendous amount of influence or they might have a tremendous amount of influence because of who they are or their economic status or their education or whoever it is, I began to realize that I would never give the gospel to Jesus. I wouldn't think to go to someone who was born from a teenage mom, who was in a rural community, who wasn't educated, and who was blue collar. The very message that God has called me to proclaim, I would never think to give that message, the message of Jesus, to Jesus himself, because I never would have thought he would be impactful, right? Do you think we struggle with the desire for power? It's all over our language. It informs our strategies of who we should reach and why. Because we want power. Because if we can reach the most impactful people, then we can gain more control, which ultimately often leads to us thinking that we can change things by the right laws. And beloved, no one's, ever, no one's heart will ever be changed by the right laws. Our message is so much more profound than that, isn't it? And James continues on in verses five and six and seven to say, are you thinking about God's activity in the world as in the way that God has always acted in the world? He's confronting us saying there's a problem. He's challenging us to see everyone. And he's saying, do you, think, do you ever think about how God has always acted in history? Look at five and six and seven. What has God done? God has always chosen the poor, the lonely, the outcast, always. Remember what the book of Deuteronomy tells us about God's choosing of his people? It's not because they were strong. It's not because they were mighty in number. It's not because they were smart. He chose them because they were weak. Do you remember how God says the same thing in his letter to the church in Corinth, one of our sister churches from a bygone age? Beloved, not many of you are noble. God has chosen the weak things in the world to shame the strong. God always, always chooses the poor and the weak and those that are marginalized, and those that no one cares about, and those that don't look great on the outward appearance. And when you think about it, it makes sense, right? Those of us that are poor know what it's like because this message is especially compelling to the poor. Think about it, if you would. If you can set your own status aside for a moment and think about this through the lens of someone 
who no one may care about, who may have made some horrible decisions, or who may have been caught up in a broken system and doesn't know how to get out. Think of it from a perspective of someone who may not have the social connections that I might or you might. Think about this from that perspective. Maybe it's a different perspective than the one you have. Think about this from another perspective. Here's a mess. Here are two messages that you might hear. Here's one. The gospel message is this. You are intrinsically valuable because you were made in the image of God. But what happened is that we rebelled against God and death came into the world and disease came into the world and there's brokenness absolutely everywhere. But God, God, our God, the living God is rich in mercy and he sent his son and Jesus came In a real human being, he came. He's a real man. He's not only God, he's 100% God, and he's 100% man, and he really came to this earth. And what he did is that he died. He gave himself as a substitute, and in giving himself as a substitute, he absorbed the wrath of God. He became sin, my sin, your sin. He became the one who bears the curse of God. And then he left the tomb. He's alive. And God, by his spirit, changes us and brings us into relationship with him so that now we live in this broken world by faith, trying to be life wherever we are and knowing that Jesus is coming back and he's gonna make all things right. Hear that message. Now hear this one. Well, you're here by accident. All this is just who knows exactly what. There's nothing beyond death. So before you die, do everything you can to create your own meaning, establish your own identity, create your own truth, live by your own truth, and whatever you feel deepest is what is most true for you. Now hearing those two messages, If you're someone who is poor and downtrodden and marginalized and not cared about, which one of those two messages has the better answer for who am I, what in the world is wrong with where I'm living, where am I going, and how do I get there? Which one communicates intrinsic value and intrinsic worth? The one that says you're an accident? Beloved, To put ourselves in the position of the poor is to realize the gospel makes complete sense because it reminds us that none of us are self-made. Doesn't it? The message that says you're an accident and there's nothing beyond death, that is further oppression for those who are already struggling and no one cares about. But to announce that this is who you are And it doesn't matter what the world thinks of you and this is what Jesus has done and this is who you can be and one day all's gonna be made right. Now that is something that I can get behind. How about you? Think about how God has always acted in history. Think about how he has always acted. It's always been by grace. And that is not to say, just to reiterate, that those that are poor are automatically saved. It's not to say that God hates money. 
There are things that could not have happened in the first century had there not been people of resources to help and to give, right? James is wanting us to think deeply about God and who he is. Do you ever relate to people just based on outward appearance or titles or degrees? James is saying, will you learn to see everyone? Then he gets into, in verses 8 through 13, this. Looking below the surface. Verse 8 through 13 are not super hard to understand. If you have more technical questions after what my explanation, please feel free to email me or come up to me afterwards. But 8 through 13 is not hard to understand at all. God is telling us through James, why don't you look below the surface a little bit more? If you break one part of the law, you've broken all of it. That's his point in 8 through 13. If you say that you love your neighbor, great. That is fantastic, wonderful. Keep going. Keep loving your neighbor. That's great. But don't forget, if you say, I haven't murdered anybody, but I've lusted in my heart for someone, that lust, that adultery means you've broken everything. That means if you're struggling with partiality, that means if you're struggling with showing favoritism, you're no different in a sense than an adulterer or a murderer. Because if you break one part of the law, you've broken it all. Everything is connected. Everything is intertwined. God desires the entire life. We don't get to pick and choose which commandments we think are better than others. We don't get to pick and choose and say, well, you know what? I've never physically murdered anyone in my life. But in your heart, you're still harboring hatred towards someone or bitterness. You've murdered you don't get to say, I've never murdered somebody, but yet you are caught up in lust and caught up in adultery. Guess what? Guilty of everything. That may not be fun to hear. And that's kind of the point James is making. You don't get to pick and choose. You can't pick your favorite people and you can't pick your favorite law. We're accountable to God for every thought, every word, and every deed. And what's so fascinating is that he says, he gets us all the way to judgment. And he says, for those who are without mercy will receive judgment without mercy. You see that? In other words, we're guilty before God, and if we don't show mercy in our lives, we won't know judgment that's merciful. In other words, God is saying through James, that the antidote to our favoritism, the antidote to us showing partiality, is mercy. It's understanding true mercy. It's understanding what mercy actually is. He's trying to get us to think about mercy quickly. This is, what the, this is a little bit about what the Bible teaches about mercy. There was a time when Jesus was walking around in the ancient Near East, and there was a man named Bartimaeus, and he was blind. And he started calling out to Jesus, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on me. He wasn't asking for Jesus to be nice toward him. He wasn't asking him just to be kind. He was wanting to be healed of his physical ailment. He was associating blindness with needing mercy. He needed to see 
And of course, Jesus has a way of taking the physical and going into the heart, doesn't he? Or how about this story? You remember the story about what's known as the Good Samaritan? It's a story about a guy that's left for dead on the side of the road. You remember this? And, and you know who walks by and does nothing? A pastor. You know who goes by after that? Someone who is super outwardly religious. And they pass right by this guy who's been left for dead. And you know who stops to help him? A Samaritan. One who is an arch enemy. Like this is the rival of rivalries, okay? This is bigger than Duke v. North Carolina. This is a really big rivalry. Samaritans and Jews hated each other for centuries. And it was the Samaritan that came alongside. And what did the Samaritan do? He helped him with his wounds. He put him on his own transportation. He took him home. He paid for his bills. He, kept, he checked in on him. And what does Jesus say to this crowd? Who was this man's neighbor? And the answer, the one that showed mercy. So what does mercy talk about in the Bible? What is mercy describing? What is God wanting us to think about when he says mercy? Caring for physical needs. Helping with bills. Helping with physical ailments. It is giving of your time for transportation and care. It is building relationship. It is saying, put that need on my account. It is doing what we can for those who have need. In other words, we should be active in our mercy. We should be participating in mercy ourselves. You can do that inside the church. There are ways that you can give to the Mercy Ministry Fund that are used to help people who are in need. If you have need, you can go to the deacons of our church and tell them that you have need and they would be happy to meet with you and help. They really will. And they're great guys and they keep things pretty confidential if you're nervous about that. And if you know people that need help in the community, the deacons have always been open to meeting with others in the community as well. And that has happened for years. You can give to this. You can also help the deacons within our church do this. You in your own life can help your neighbors and your friends. Yeah, let's even go outside the church. There are places and organizations in this town that we have relationships with. You can serve at Hope of Glory if you would like, which we have a relationship with. You can Go to a soup kitchen if you want. Joy Soup Kitchen on Albemarle Street. You can go there. You can go to a community crossroads and serve there. You can look at building hope. You can explore Third Street. You can explore all of these things, and you will find that there are people in our church who are involved in these various ways in our community. But please, as much as I want you to hear all of that, I want you to hear this. Don't forget about your calling. Yeah, I'm talking about your job. Don't forget that you have a responsibility to bring mercy into your workplace. You spend more time there than anything else. How are you bringing care for those into your jobs and into your work. Many of you are involved in the medical community. Are you bitter or burned out or tired? Do you need to hit the reset about the reality that you have been given an incredible privilege to care for people every day? 
even people that are stubborn and hard to get along with, people like me. I know that you endure patience. Some of them are obnoxious. My oncologist doesn't like me as much as I thought she might because I keep pestering her. Don't forget your jobs. Don't forget to bring what you believe about Jesus and what you believe about the intrinsic worth and value of every human being into your job. Because, beloved, mercy is not an event. Mercy is a lifestyle. God wants us to be a merciful people that are caring for others, that are thinking about the place that God has put them, that are thinking about their jobs through the lens of the gospel. Do you see it? Do you get it? We are to be a merciful people. You don't have to wait on us as leadership of the church to tell you to do this or to go tell you to do that or we're gonna have this big event. Be active. We are trying to fill you with the gospel week in and week out so that you will go and fulfill your calling during the week. And yes, that's not always easy. But it is important to think about others and to be other-centered to think about how we can bring mercy into some really hard places, like the workplace, where it's complicated, where people are hard to work with, and where most of our businesses are just about the bottom line. Beloved, don't get caught up in the trap of just making money and just producing. Think about caring and showing mercy and living out the gospel. What's keeping you from doing that now? What's keeping you from being excited about serving others tomorrow? Third and finally, what does James see? Look, look at the text again. I'll tell you what he sees. It's in verse one. He sees glory. Look at what he says about Jesus. He's not only the Christ, he is what the Old Testament talked about that was coming. He's not only Lord, sovereign over everything. James sees glory. Jesus, our glory. Every commentator that I read this week, every expert that I read this week said, do you notice the difference that James starts off with glory and goes from Jesus being our glory to the glory that we associate with our lives? Those that look really good. Those that are rich, they seem, to, they, they seem to have a lot of glory. They get a lot of praise. They get a lot of attention. And those that don't have that, not so glorious people. James is wanting us to see glory. He's wanting us to behold the Lord Jesus Christ. He's wanting us to remember that Christ is our glory. Can you walk back through this text and make sense of it? There was a man who came to earth and he is the one person in the entire universe that we should show favoritism to. And what did we do when he showed up? Jesus, don't just go over there and stand in the corner, but let us please escort you out of town and crucify you on a tree. God in the flesh, we wanted nothing to do with him. Beloved, if you think you don't have anger problems, just look at what we did to God when he came to us. We killed him. And not only that, 
but he endured judgment so that the reality is that mercy would triumph. Did you notice that at the end of verse 13? Mercy would triumph over judgment because Jesus faced all of the judgment of a holy God so that by absorbing that judgment, we would see mercy. That the message of our relationship with God is won by grace because we are always prone to have favorites and show favoritism and be attracted to things that are on the surface and be drawn to things because of how they appear. There are entire church models that are just based upon attraction and what we think people will be attracted to. And oftentimes that isn't even Jesus. James is saying, do you see Jesus? Do you see that he is your glory? Do you realize that he came and did everything? Beloved, do you get the point of me pushing you earlier to think about this term and idea that we don't often like to think about, the poor and the marginalized? Do you get it? We're the poor. We are the spiritually poor. We are bankrupt before God. We have nothing. We have nothing. And Jesus came to us and gave us the message of grace, that gave us the message of salvation so that we can boast in our exaltation. Do you remember this from chapter one? So that we will be humbled by the fact that we're sinners and needed God to die. Beloved James is saying, do you see the glory? Do you see glory? Because when Jesus is your glory, it's really hard for favoritism to exist. When you see Jesus as your glory, it fights hard against that desire to just look on the surface. And when you see Jesus as your glory, then you have every reason to show mercy all the time. 